listening to the Soil Talk podcast. I am your host, Tim Mundorf, Nutrient Management Lead with Central Valley Ag. In Soil Talk, we will dive into managing soil fertility and applied nutrients while pursuing top yield. So last time on Soil Talk, we talked about pH and especially high pH and some of its impact on oh, nutrients and herbicides and how we manage around it and what we can do to correct it. But this time on Soil Talk, we're going to go to the other side of pH and talk about low pH. Today as our guest, I've got Mick Godekin, who's the innovation agronomist for Central Valley Ag. Mick, you've got a lot of experience in soil fertility, but some of our guests may not know your background, so give us a little rundown about yourself. Tim, I've got a master's degree in soil science, uh, focused on fertility from Oklahoma State, and then I've worked in soil testing and seed corn industry, the the retail fertilizer industry and the wholesale fertilizer industry over the years and uh, spent a lot of time giving presentations here and there and and trying to learn something new every day. We won't hold that Oklahoma State cowboy thing against you too much, but we might make fun of you a little bit. I was born and bred a Husker, so that's the way it stays. So Mick, you've got a lot of experience, I know, in low pH soils. What are your concerns when you see a, a soil with low pH? And I mean, I guess, first of all, let's start with what you think low pH is. You know, we get below five, then I really get worried. Uh, certainly, uh, you get below six and you start seeing problems. And, you know, when do I really get scared is, is below five. Uh the six, the five to six range, you can correct fairly quickly with Lyme. You get below that, you're starting to see a lot of long-term effects that take a lot, a lot more years and a lot more cash to fix. What do you think with different crops? So when I know you've got some experience with wheat. Do you treat wheat any different than corn and soybeans, or do you treat it about the same? I would treat soybeans, uh, I'd like to keep them above that six range. Uh, because that's, they're a little more sensitive than the wheat and the corn. Uh, and then if you get want to separate the wheat and the, cor- and the corn from each other, uh, certainly aluminum toxicity becomes more important when you're dealing with wheat because you've got a lot more plants out there. Uh, and lodging with wheat is, is not very fun to go combine flat wheat. I've been in a few fields where you see true aluminum toxicity, and it's kind of a surprise. At first, you'll think it's herbicide damage, and you'll think, well, maybe it's a big nematode population. Uh, But you go get the soil tested, you know, as you're doing your investigation, all of a sudden, here it is, it's 4.3 or 4.7 pH. And that aluminum toxicity, it's literally melting those root ends. Generally, you dig a root up and and you start seeing those melted roots, and it's your first clue. But there are other things that can affect roots besides pH. But uh, generally, you see those melted roots, you start looking for the pH. As we get into those really low pH environments, and even before we get into them, we get into those low fives, that aluminum uh, becomes more active in the soil. It's in the soil naturally, but normally it's kind of tied up as aluminum hydroxide. But if you get a lot of free aluminum out there, it starts reacting with water and that reaction becomes kind of a chain reaction, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And, you know, and if you got a guy that throws his pop can out the tractor, it even becomes more of a a problem with that aluminum. 
Yep. Yeah, as that aluminum starts reacting with the water, it's it's releasing the, that free hydrogen. That free hydrogen, of course, is what we're measuring in the lab test. But not only that, that hydrogen is creating all kinds of issues for that plant's root system, its ability to grow, and nutrient tie-up. We always think about tie-up in high pH soils, but talk a little about your thoughts on nutrient tie-up in, uh, in low pH soils. Tim, when I think of nutrient tie-up in low pH, uh, certainly number one goes to phosphorus. And you guys discussed phosphorus quite a bit in the last last episode but some of these micronutrients get tied up and when we're trying to push for high yields micronutrients become more and more important uh, you think about the inverse of that one of the things that i've experienced and you and i've discussed it in the past is manganese toxicity that occurs in low phs had a field that the ph was neutral according to the soil test. It was a grid, it was not a grid sampled field in the past and and everything looked fine, but we had about a three to five acre spot that just would corn would get about two, three feet high and then die. And so I started to do some investigation and went out to the field and pulled some samples and looked at things and sent it in and our manganese numbers were through the roof. I can't remember off the top of my head how high they were, but through the roof to, to what we typically see. pH was just below five as four, eight, four, nine in, in a couple different samples. So that led to the grower wanting to go ahead and grid sample that field. In that grid sample, we found that there was another two to three acre area that we had the same issue, but he wasn't seeing it as, as prevalent as a the one corner. I've had the same thing happen. I got involved in a, a low pH soil where the ag retailer had recommended uh, some manganese and for good reason. The, the tissue samples in the plant were a little low in manganese and it was the next, it was the following year. So they were doing a little something soil applied. It was a small amount. It wasn't much. I don't remember, but I'll just say five pounds of manganese. Well, then they had an issue and it kind of followed the application lines. And all of a sudden the retailers getting blamed for, you know, manganese toxicity. Well, we get the soil samples and start looking around a little bit deeper and the pH is four or five or four or seven. And, and the issue was more, you know, we shouldn't have even been talking about manganese. We should have been talking about soil pH and making that correction before we try to fine tune micronutrients. So I always go back to my priority list and pH is really high on my priority list. pH should be, you know, it's it's got to be number one in my book. It's That's my opinion, you know, and you've discussed opinions and agronomists. and But <laughs> if your pH true? isn't right, your yield goal has to drop. Right, right. You know, so you were talking a little bit about anything less than a six is something that you're wanting to manage. Anytime you get less than a five, it's a disaster. And it's absolutely got to be the pri the top priority for that grower. And, and he's created a long-term problem that's going to penalize him for years to come. What do you think about uh, when you look into correcting pH? What's what's your way of, of going about? I know we talk about lime, we talk about pell lime. I think there gets to be a lot of confusion between the two. You know, give us a little of your thoughts on those. So my my opinion is, if we own the ground, let's put the long term investment into ag lime. Let's use the ag lime to get get us to where we're going. If you don't own the ground and it's rented ground, you don't want to put a, an investment like that into it. We can utilize a Pell line. Uh, recently, we've we've been working with a supplier that has a very good high quality Pell line that allows us to do 
a larger spread than what we typically have done with Pell line and utilize that and do every other other year and get just as good of results as we would with an ag line. Yeah, I would agree completely. I, I'm a farm boy from Western Iowa and we had it, it good. So one thing I'll, I'll say when you're talking about ag line versus Pell line, you got to look around you and say, well, well, how easy is it to get ag line here? Because there's areas in our footprint where it's not easy. We're talking, you know, three hours of trucking to get ag lime onto that farm. And that adds a lot to the cost. So as you're thinking about liming, look around you and see what sources you have. I grew up in an area where we had three quarries, I actually worked on one right out of high school, but three quarries within 15 miles of our farm. So we had a lot of sources of ag lime. It's easy to get, cheap to get, trucking wasn't much. So like you, if you own the ground, you, you make the long-term investment and you use ag lime. But coming from that environment and, and coming over to CVA and spend more time in Nebraska and Kansas, where in some places there's not as easy access to ag lime, I did see a lot of benefits to Pell line. You know, it's just easier to work through our logistics and keep it in our sheds, goes through all of our application machines. I mean, ag lime, you don't really want to put your best spinner and certainly not an air machine on ag lime. That just doesn't work. Pell line, you can work it through everything in your system. Another, another hard thing to deal with with ag lime is is trucking getting trucks when you need it when you have this window of opportunity for application and a lot of times we fight that ourselves uh, if we got a good high quality pell lime and that leads me to think not all pell limes are created equal you have to have a consistent high quality product and certainly if you're using that then you're you can do just as good a job as you do with an ag line I'll occasionally have the conversation with the grower that maybe we should do both. Now, that's not for everybody. If you've got ag lime close to you and you've got soil pHs that are getting into the, certainly into the fives and, and you can make a long-term correction that's going to last you for a lot of years with ag lime, a lot of times that's the way to go. But if you've got really low pH, like you're at 5.0 or 4.9 or 4.7 and you don't have the ability to get at, maybe you didn't discover it until the spring. Well, I'm not a huge fan of getting out there with ag lime right before planting. I like the freeze thaw cycle to break up that compaction because there's going to be compaction with ag lime. So I'll tell a grower, let's band-aid it right now with as high of a rate of pell lime as you're comfortable with. You know, you get above about 800 pounds of pell lime and it gets pretty darn pricey. Right. I'll say, hey, let's get some pell lime out there to impact this year because you've got a, a really big problem and it's going to, it's going to have a big bushel impact of this year. So let's get the process started with Pell Lime, but then let's plan and make this one of the first fields we get after with Ag Lime uh, when the fall comes and then put that compaction in the ground that you're going to put in there, but then let the freeze thaw cycle break it up. Your thoughts on that? Certainly, I do not like Ag Lime in the spring. Uh, it just, it doesn't react fast enough and the compaction is another issue that we create with that. Uh, you know, and now with some higher quality Pell line products that are out there, we can do it. I can remember back in, in my retail days, uh, getting some product that wasn't as good a quality. And we had chunks in the, in there that were the size of basketballs. And all I had was an air machine. I had to break those chunks by hand and it wasn't very fun before I could even drop it into my air machine. Yeah, that's tough on equipment. There's no doubt about it. I've seen the same thing on our farm as well. When we think about, again, that uh, that pH range you're looking for, you kind of gave what you're looking for. I guess I didn't give mine. Um, I use soil pH, of course, as my trigger point. 
and my trigger point for the most parts around 6.0. If I'm below 6.0, it's time to be thinking about liming. Do I absolutely have to pull the trigger this year in a corn bean rotation? Probably not. If I'm thinking about alfalfa anytime in the near future, yeah, alfalfa is different. You got to get after that one. You go seed an alfalfa into a low pH soil, you're going to be disappointed with your stand. But back to the corn soybeans, you know, I use 6.0 as my trigger point, and then uh, as I get below it, it's it's time to be making that application. If I'm below five five, there's no arguing anymore. It's it's got to be done, and that's kind of the way I think about it. It needs to be done at five at that five five range. You know, I probably would be leaning towards that five eight five nine area more so because I want to prevent the problems before we see them. Yep, I would agree with that. And then when we think about okay, well, what do we want to get to? So we're at you know six zero five eight somewhere there. You know we know we're lower than we want to be, but it's not someplace where we're getting too panicky about. Where do we want to get it to to kind of give us some cushion going forward? Because we know we're always lower in pH as we add nitrogen fertilizer. So I suppose it makes some difference what your crop rotation's like. If you're corn corn and you're always throwing down a couple hundred pounds of nitrogen, you're going to be lower in that pH faster than if you're corn soybean. What's your thoughts on that? You know, in a in a corn on corn situation, I'd like to see a guy put out a, enough pell lime or ag lime to neutralize the 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 hydrogen ions that he's releasing with that nitrogen application. Uh, convincing a grower to do that isn't very easily easy, but if they start seeing those benefits then they can. I'd like to see it in that shoot for a goal of six five to six seven just to give us that cushion to play with over the years uh, in those corn soybean rotations maybe we do a pell lime apl application every two years just to help neutralize that effect of that of that nitrogen fertilizer that we're applying that's one of the best uses of pell lime right there is just keeping yourself in a good place and keeping you from getting into the area where now you think, oh my gosh, I got a real problem. I need to fix it. I mean, when you got a huge problem, you need to fix it. You can't hardly argue against ag lime. That's the way to go. But when you're just trying to keep yourself in a good spot and provide calcium, sometimes we, we forget about calcium. We talk about, well, I got to neutralize this acidity and that's right. But one of the side benefits of calcium carbonate, which is what lime is, is we supply calcium and we take a lot of calcium out of our fields with our grain trucks. Yes, we do. When I'm thinking about uh, my corrections and we're pretty much in the same boat, Mick, I like to correct to a pH of about 6.5 and I like to correct to a depth of about six inches. Now, our fields where my family farms are all no-till. So that takes time. That's another thing to talk to a guy about. That correction isn't just like, bam, it's you get the lime out there and over time it, it's reacting with the soil and it's reacting with the surface first and then working its way down. What are your thoughts on that? You know, that's the one thing that we see, but we're in those no-till situations, Tim, but you got to think about it. Our pH is also strat stratified in those no-till situations. So we're fixing it from the top down where we see that stratification of pH being lower at the top and raising as we go down also. You're right, because we add our, a lot of our nitrogen at the top, just a couple inches right on the surface if we're doing a weed and feed type thing or urea. That, that uh, um, change from ammonia to nitrate, so that nitrification, when that happens, that's what's releasing your hydrogen. That's happening in the surface of soil. Now, hydrogen can move some, but it's not going to move really fast. And the same thing's true of that pH correction. That calcium carbonate, the carbonate uh, reacting with that hydrogen to produce 
water and carbon dioxide, that happens at the surface as well. And that that lime is kind of reacted as it moves to the soil. And there's just less and less of it available as you go down. So that's a challenge. And I, I tell people, a lot of guys will say, well, I'm just going to try to concentrate on the top three inches of soil. I'm only going to try to react that. Well, then I'll say, if you're going to do that and you want a lime recommendation based off of it, you need to take samples at three inches. And the problem with that is all of our other nutrient calibrations based off six inch samples. So I just go with that six to eight inch samples for everything that I do. And if I'm doing um, no-till, I may cut my rate back, you know, based off that six inch deep correction. I've got a rate of, let's just say it's four ton. Now, of course, I completely believe in grid sampling when it comes to pH. I, if you're doing liming, you should be grid sampling. But for an example, I'll just say that the, the field average is something like four tons of lime it needs across there. And I'm going to cut it back because I only want to correct a lesser amount because I'm in no-till. The, the problem with that is you're going to have to come back and lime more often. So that's what I'll tell guys is, that, you know, you got two choices. Either start taking some samples at three inches to know what you really got to correct there. Or if you want to cut the lime rec back because you're no-till, just expect that you're not going to get the full correction you're looking for and you're going to have to lime more often. I would agree. You know, uh, that that eight-inch profile is is whatever, six or eight-inch profile is whatever things calibrate on. It's what our standards are when we when we soil sample. And so it'd be another run across the field to get three-inch samples. And so we just need to fine-tune it in and adjust according to the to the tillage situation we're in yeah another thing you mentioned nick is just that keeping up with the, the acidity that you're adding both with the fertilizer that you're adding and of course the bases that you're taking off in that that crop as you pull grain off of there i've always used a number of somewhere in the one and a half to two pounds of actual pure lime so pure calcium carbonate for about every pound of nitrogen, and that's the actual nitrogen, not the pound of fertilizer, but pound of actual nitrogen that I apply to a field. So if I'm putting down uh, 200 pounds of nitrogen every other year, then I need to figure around 350, 400 pounds of calcium carbonate every other year as well. That's and that, right. would, that would be the same calculations that I would use. Yeah. Uh, and it, it'll vary a little bit with your source of nitrogen, but uh, generally, it's it's fairly close with that conversion. We should cut off here for just a little bit to a funny farm story. So I guess you got the last one mixed. So I'll throw mine out there and we'll see uh, if this one will go through safety or not. So when I'm uh, turned 16 years old, the one thing about growing up on a farm is you start driving when you're about eight or seven, six, depending on how many phone books they got and if you can see over the dash or whatever you're driving. But when you turn 16, now you can drive legal. And the key thing about turning 16 and driving legal is now you can drive the grain truck. Because when you're driving the grain truck, you probably actually do need a driver's license. The, the uh, state patrol or the county sheriff, you know, he might let you get by following dad in the pickup while he's driving the tractor to the next field. He's not going to let you get by with driving the grain truck to town. So turn 16, now I'm driving a grain truck. My dad and I won... Uh, summer are moving grain out and we're taking turns filling trucks and running them into town. So we've got a pretty good operation going. Each of us has got our own grain truck and we're filling ourselves, which works really well as long as there's a lot of grain in the bin and things are flowing down to the traps pretty well. 
Well, we got late in that, and we're just getting to the point where we need to start thinking about cleaning that bin out. We've op- we've got the grain down through the center trap. We've opened the side trap to get us down to the door so we can open the door up, but we're still getting grain flowing pretty good, so we haven't put a sweep auger in there yet. Anyway, I'm filling the truck. I've got it about half to two-thirds full, and uh, the grain stopped flowing. So I go into the bin, and I take a lap around the, the corn quick to get the, the corn moving down into the center trap. And I sit back down and watch it flowing into the truck to move the truck one more time, get back in the bin, make another lap around there to let the grain flow down to the center trap. And then I've got my truck about full. So I pretty much wrap things up, um, shut things off and hop in the truck and, and head into town. And I get into the scale house and, and uh, you know, been through this before. And I know that I need to get out of the truck and go in there to talk to them a little bit, just so they're not weighing me with the truck. Because when I get back out of the truck to weigh out, it needs to have you know, the same number of people in it. So they're not paying for my weight in corn as they're, as they're cashing me out. So anyway, I, I go in there and, and I pull up on, on the scale and hop in, you know, and I'm waiting for them to, to weigh me. And of course they're needing to tell me which, which, uh, uh, unloader to go to. So they asked me, well, have you got corn or have you got beans? And I'm a teenage boy and teenage boys are pretty much thinking about three things. Number one are teenage girls. Number two is they just turned 16. So cars and number three is lunch. But what I'm not thinking about is what the grain is that I just loaded that truck with, what the grain is I just ran around in that bin with, what the grain is that's still in my shoe. If I just take a shoe off and dump it on the floor, I'll know which of the two it is. But at this moment, I can't come up with it. And the guy just says, well, go over to, I don't remember which one it was now, but go over to the corn pit and we'll unload you. I get back home and and uh, and then it's lunchtime, so I'm waiting for my dad when you put, put the sweet sweep auger in. Anyway, he gets back from delivering his load, comes back and he says, you know, you won't believe what Terry at the elevator told me when I came in there. <laughs> you really didn't know what grain you had in the truck. I'm like, no, dad, I really didn't know. <laughs> so the moral of the story is when you're a teenage boy, think about what you're doing. Teenage boys have no brains. That's the moral of the story. <laughs> All right, back to pH. You know, we talked about uh, some of those nutrient interactions and the problems uh, pH causes for tie-up, you know, both in uh, the more basic or high pH and the more acidic and low pH soils. How about microbial activity? That one's kind of out there and is a little bit new to the table for everybody. But what are your thoughts about pH's impact on microbial activity? You know, from the things we've learned as we start learning more and more about the soil microbes and, you know, you think about we know a lot about the human microbial system in the gut, and it's taken years for us to get there. And we're just starting to learn about the microbial system in the soil and the health of that. And if we lower that pH, there's a lot of those microbes that cannot survive in a low pH environment. And just like the microbes in our gut, they have to have a, a, neutral, a neutral pH to survive. Now, in, in your stomach, in, in your intestine, in your stomach, it's an acidic environment. You have different microbial populations. So some of those microbes that are in the soil, there are some that like that acidic environment, some that like more of a neutral environment, and it's a fine balance. And so when we have a, an acidic soil, we can damage some of those microbes that are very beneficial to our, our soil health. That's my understanding as well. Um, back when I worked for Midwest Laboratories, you know, we worked with that uh, soil um, activity or biological activity measurement. And I know, you know, you spent some time at Ward Laboratories and, and they have uh, been a leader in soil health and, and microbial measurements. But 
a problem we always had was microbial activity was very weather dependent. So depending on when you pull the sample, you know, we did some things to try to work around that, but there are always some issues that seem like if I left a sample sit in my office for a couple more days, especially when the weather outside's cold, but of course my office is 72 degrees and sunny, and I'd uh, then turn that sample in later, invariably the microbial activity would be higher. So that always gave us some challenges. But one correlation we did really have is that when we were in an acidic soil, uh, by and large, the biological activity was worse. So as, as, as you let a soil go acidic and you don't make that corrections, you're literally shooting mother nature in the foot. She wants to give you a whole bunch of soil nutrients and cycle a bunch of that stover out there and help things to break down and make it available to your crop. But you're shooter, shooting her in the foot if you can't let her microbes do their work. You know, one of my experiences, Tim, is, is corn stalk residue. Everybody cusses it in the spring. And uh, in the past, I've worked with a lot of guys trying to, trying to figure out how do we break that residue down. And when we get into more of acidic soils, it's harder for that residue to break down because you don't have that microbial activity. The one herbicide interaction thing on low pH, what are your thoughts on that? From my standpoint, it seems like carryover was one of the bigger issues you ran into with low pH. They didn't seem to break down like they should. And maybe that's that microbial activity. And that, that would be the only thing that I'd really worry about on the herbicide end. Uh, tends to be that herbicide interactions on the label are more on that high side, uh, but we do have some more residual or carryover into the next season when we have that low, lower pH. Uh, I've experienced that a couple times throughout my career and had some claims or, or questions about it, and you start measuring it and you see higher amounts of that herbicide had carried over. And I think that it, it all goes back to that uh, less microbial activity to break it apart. Yeah. You know, you said something earlier that I think is really important. You know, this is, uh, we're kind of into our episodes now. We started talking about nitrogen. We started talking about uh, phosphorus. We went into potassium and sulfur. And we kind of left pH a little lower in the order maybe than we should have. Because I agree with you. You said that you thought pH was the number one issue that growers should pay attention to. I've always kind of thought uh, nitrogen was king, especially in corn. But again, since with pH, you're literally shooting Mother Nature in the foot and half the nitrogen your corn crop uh, takes up is coming from Mother Nature anyway, you're probably right. pH probably is the number one issues that, grower, that growers face. And whether you're managing high around high or managing low pH, it's something you really should focus on. I, I still look at a soil test. That's the first number I look for is that pH number. And then I go beyond that. But uh, I still think it's it should be number one priority. All right. Well, with that, I think we'll wrap it up. Thank you very much, Mick, for joining us on the soil or on the Soil Talk podcast today. I'm Tim Mundorf, your host with Central Valley Ag. Thank you for joining us today on Soil Talk. If you'd like to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter at ACS by CVA. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Central Valley Ag. If you'd like more information, visit cvacoop.com, and you can see our precision-focused blog videos every Thursday. With Soil Talk, this is Tim Mundorf.